Before we get started, I want to talk about sponsors that help make this show possible. I've partnered with swimming companies that can serve our international audience. Superior Swim Timing. Run a swim meet with ease from your laptop. SST is fully compatible with high-tech, Team Unify, as well as Colorado, Dactronics, and Amiga touchpads. SuperiorSwimTiming.com Swim Angelfish. Receive the tools and skills needed to teach swimmers with autism, physical disabilities, anxiety, sensory and motor conditions with Swim Angelfish. Go to SwimAngelfish.com Destro Swim Towers. Gain strength in the water with a tower of power. Save $150 per double swim tower by using code BRETT, B-R-E-T-T, at checkout. DestroMachines.com The Magic 5. Custom-fitted goggles that are tailor-made for your exact face. You shouldn't feel like you're wearing any goggles. Use code BRETTHAWK20 at checkout to receive 20% off. Nate's come out with another awesome tool for the swimming community. It's called Swim Nerd Live, and it allows the data and times from your actual scoreboard to be broadcast and viewed in real time on any smart TV, phone, or other device. It has all the information you're looking for. Event, heat, lane, name of swimmer, times and places. One click on any device and they're watching your swim meet live in real time. Go to swimpractice.com to learn more. All right, my good friend and Olympic champ, Tyler Clary. How you doing, man? Good, man. It's not too bad for a Wednesday. How are you? It is Wednesday. Yeah, I'm losing track of days, but uh, I'm good, man. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So uh, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on. It's always not, not only is it good to chat with you and hear your voice, but I get to see that pretty face as well. It is pretty, isn't it? You're right. <laughs> now, listen, man, um, you are an ex-Olympic champ, but that's not the most interesting thing that's happened in your life recently. <laughs> um, tell us what's going on, man. Tell us about what happened recently. Yeah. So, um, uh, it'll be six weeks on Friday. I had open heart surgery to repair a, a very leaky aortic valve. Um, I went in and the, the story is, is actually really only a year long depending on how you look at it. But so I went in for a routine physical in October and that was actually just cause I wanted to establish, you know, a rhythm of going in and, and seeing a doctor normally. And, and I hadn't regularly, I think I should say, um, I hadn't seen a doctor since, you know, being in swimming, which was in 2016. So four years later, four and a half years later, after retirement, I wanted to go in and see a primary care physician and, got a physical and he went and did his whole thing. And, um, it got to the point where he pulled out his stethoscope and he started listening to my heart in, in a bunch of different areas, but it took him like two or three minutes. And it was, it was weirdly long, um, how long he was listening to my heart. And, and he stopped after a while and said, has anybody ever told you that you have a heart murmur? 
And truth be told, I actually laughed at him because I thought he was joking because, you know, I just figured with all of the the time I spent on the national team and as, as much attention my body had gotten over the years um, competing that somebody would have noticed it before, but nobody had ever said it before. So I thought he was joking. So I chuckled and then he said, no, seriously, you have a, a textbook heart murmur. Like it's, it doesn't sound more like a heart murmur than what you have. So he ordered a test and that was, um, it's called an echocardiogram, which is basically like an ultra, it's, it's an ultrasound of the heart. Mm -hmm. Um, they use the same technology that they use on pregnant women to be able to see, um, see what's going on in in the womb with, with, um, unborn children. So I went in, I had the test and it was on a Friday and I went in, I believe it was at like eight 30 in the morning, finished the, the test. Um, they said someone will be in touch after they look at your test. And, um, it wasn't, I don't think I had the opportunity to get home before I got a phone call that said, Hey, you have a, you have severe aortic insufficiency. You need to go see a cardiologist immediately, which mm. all of a sudden <laughs> sends um, alarm bells off in my mind, um, you know, as to like what's going on. So that was on a Friday. They got me in to see a cardiologist on a Monday. And the first thing the cardiologist said to me as he walks through the door is, um, you know, hey, how are you? You know, my name's so-and-so. Nice to meet you. You know, sorry, we're not meeting on better terms. That was literally one of the first things uh, my cardiologist said to me. So I'm like thinking, oh, great. Like, what's just tell me what's going on. <laughs> and so come to find out, I was born with what's called a bicuspid aortic valve, which means that my um, aortic valve only has two leaflets as opposed to three, which is, is normal. Um, and there's no real problem with that early on, except over the course of time, those valves tend to um, harden and, and you get leakage like I have and, and they need to be re- you know replaced. Most of the time they get replaced. So they start doing some other testing and, and find out that for every pint of blood my heart was trying to pump, um, actually towards the end, over a half a pint of blood would flow backwards because my heart was leaking so bad. Mm. Um, and it was leaking so badly to the point that the, the surgeon who actually performed my surgery said that, um, and he's seen just doing some basic math, um, over 4,000 aortic valves. And he said, if I'm not in the top five, I'm in the top 10 leakiest valves he's ever seen once they actually opened me up and and they started working on it. Mm. But so backing up for a second. After we found out that I was, I was, um, you know, I had a really leaky valve, the cardiologist said, you're going to need open heart surgery and we're going to need to replace the valve. And so they started talking to me about my different options. And when you're talking about aortic valve replacement, you have a really, um, especially aortic valve replacement. I'm not so sure about the other valves, but with aortic valves, you have two main options as it relates to replacement. You have a tissue valve, which everybody says, oh, it's a pig valve or a cow valve. And, and sometimes they are actually the whole valve. And sometimes it's a little bit more complicated, but they're tissue valves. And then on the other side, you have mechanical valves and there are pluses and downsides to either. With a mechanical valve, they last really long. I mean, they, they could potentially last 45 to 50 years. But the downside is, is you have to be on blood thinners for the rest of your life, or at least while you have the mechanical valve in. <clears throat> And that's kind of not so great because for someone at my age, it's extremely likely that I'll have some sort of bleeding related event 
um, later on in life just from being on blood thinners for that long. Yeah. So I wanted to avoid blood thinners, but then the only other option was the tissue valve, which tends to only last 10 or 12 years, which means I'm going to have to have another open heart surgery to replace that valve in 10 to 12 years, if it lasts that long. So to me, I was like, this, these are kind of both not so great <laughs> options, you know, because um, I don't, I don't want to have to have more surgeries than I need to, nor do I want to have to be on blood thinners if I don't have to. So thankfully my, my wife, Clarka is, um, she's got connections to she, her degree, her undergraduate degree was actually in bioengineering. And she started looking through some of her notes and there was something in a class that she had once she's got a crazy memory, um, that was talking about specifically aortic valve repairs. And it's a very new surgery. In fact, everybody I've talked to since the surgery down here in the, the medical systems here in Charlotte, um, admit that it's a, it's a very rare surgery and there aren't very many people in the world that are even performing these aortic valve repairs. And so we went in to meet with the surgeon down here in Charlotte that I was, I was assigned to, and he was talking to us about the replacement procedure. And I asked him specifically about repair after my wife had brought it up. And he was very honest and said, look, nobody around here is really doing that. I don't have a ton of experience doing it. And, and, um, you know, I would recommend a repair based on, you know, what we do normally around here. And I asked him if there was anybody out there that he knew of that was good, you know, like a referral to somebody mm -hmm. who could repair my valve. And he actually said, you know, I was just recently at a conference. There was this guy um, named Dr. Joseph Bavaria at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's, you know, really good. He's, you know, he flies all over the world and um, you should really check him out. So he gave me the referral. And I started doing research. And when I say research, I don't mean like seeing if the guy has a profile page on UPenn's you know, website or anything like that. Like <laughs> I started looking for power, you know, PowerPoint presentations, speeches, that sort of thing. And I really looked at everything he was doing. I could tell that he really understood everything that was going on and, and why certain things were good or not as it related to repairing aortic valves. So we reached out and had a couple meetings. He was very confident that he could repair my valve all the way up until, you know, two days before the surgery, which was the last time I saw him before surgery. And um, we chose to go up to, to University of Pennsylvania to have it done because, you know, they were the only ones in the area really doing these repairs. And interestingly enough, before surgery, like kind of during the, you know, the research phase, Dr. Bavaria connected me with another surgeon who's finishing his fellowship, who's about the same age, his name's Dr. Todd Crawford, um, who is a cardiac surgeon that does aortic repairs or is learning and training with aortic valve repairs, mm. who has been through the same operation that I was having. In fact, his operation was a little bit more intense. So it was, it was really fascinating to get to talk to Dr. Crawford um, as someone who's not only been through the surgery himself, but performs them, you know, on yeah. sometimes a daily basis or, yeah. or, or at least observes. Mm. And um, that was really nice. But then we decided to move forward with the surgery um, because the response to my aortic valve leaking so badly, the way the heart or the way the body responds and compensates for that is it gets really big. So think about it like um, if you're trying to put um, a bunch of water in a bucket and the bucket has a bunch of holes in the bottom, but you're trying to keep the level of the water constant mm. in terms of the amount of blood that's being pushed through the body. 
well, you just, you have to pour more, pour more water into the bucket. Mm -hmm. So my heart was getting bigger and bigger and bigger so that it could push enough volume to compensate for the leak while still getting enough blood to the rest of my body. So that's how you won the Olympics. You had the heart of a horse. <laughs> well, not really. <laughs> um, it, it may have been closer to the size of one, probably not anywhere near that. But um, it, my, my heart was definitely enlarged, but it was certainly a, a detriment in that my body was having to spend a lot more energy than normal to just pump the same amount of volume. Right. Um, and it was getting worse. My heart was actually starting to fail. I think if I had waited even six to eight months longer, my heart was getting so big that it was going to start to scar and that's not reversible. And thankfully we caught it in time. So, you know, my heart's actually uh, shrunk quite a lot in size um, since then. And to give you some context, most normal people have a left ventricle that's between four and five centimeters when fully dilated. Um, on the operating table, mine was seven and a half centimeters. So it was like significantly bigger to the point where like if I was to lay down on the ground, um, you could actually watch my left ventricle mechanically move through my rib cage. It was so big. Jeez. Um, wow. Man, uh, the, the last 10 minutes of you talking, I had so many questions that were being raised along the way. And I was like, oh, my God. I mean, I was listening to everything just like, where do we even start with this? This is nuts. I mean, what a crazy story, first of all. For, you know, who's your physician? I need to go see this guy. I mean, for the fact that every other person you've ever seen in your life has missed the fact that you had a heart murmur and this guy just like picks it up. I mean, thank God well, for him. It, and that's the kind that's the kind of the crazy thing, right? Like nobody knows how long it's been super detectable, right? Like for someone to just listen to my heart and be like, that's exact that's there's something wrong. We gotta we gotta look at that. Okay. Um, so th there's no way to know. Like it maybe it was audible for my entire life and just nobody ever really listened that closely or maybe this developed you know within the last couple of years that's also possible but i was born with this type of valve and my cardiologist also said that it based on my anatomy he's confident that i've never I've, my heart has never functioned at better than 70 percent efficiency at he as he put it so who knows you know if it was even possible to detect it. But at the end of the day, all that really matters is that we found it and we were able to address it before any permanent damage was done. I mean, it really, it really kind of speaks volumes into how freaky your athletic performances were, you know, I mean, to be good at anything is, is tough to be the best in the world at something is almost impossible and to be doing it at the capacity and there's a lot of people look there's a lot of debate out there of which event is the toughest swimming event you know uh, but the 200 backstrokes in the conversation man you know like you got to do some dirty work for the 200 back when the four i am and the two fly like i just i just characteristically did all the yeah you know a grouping of events that that a lot of people would argue are some of the most painful and aerobically taxing to your point yeah, it's just ridiculous to, to think that you never had an issue before. Like, did, did you ever have a heart issue during swimming that you can remember? Completely asymptomatic. Like, there, the, there was never a point in time where I had any symptoms other than within the six months leading up to, um, you know, go, going in for surgery, you know, being able, like, realizing, you know, my... I can watch my heartbeat through my chest and like, I can't see anybody else's doing that. Like that's yeah. kind of weird. Oh. Um, that, that was really it. I mean, I was running like 
three to four miles, you know, three to four times a week. Um, you know, I was not swimming a lot, but like every once in a while I'd get in swim and I could, I could crank out a couple miles, no problem. Like there weren't a whole lot of, of issues, but the, the wild thing to me is like, it's just amazing what kind of do you, what you're saying is like the human body can compensate for some amazing stuff. And mm. I don't think there's any way to actually tell, like somebody asked me like, Oh, so do you think you could go 30% faster in your events? Like, no, absolutely not. But it's possible that, you know, had I been able to have this repaired and rewind the clock, I might be able to go, you know, up a couple percentage points faster, maybe. Um, but at the end of the day, all that really matters is it's like, it's wild that my body was able to compensate for that. And still I was able to perform at a very high level. Yeah. It's crazy. One of the <clears> other <throat> things that really stood out during the first part of your talk was the fact that Clark or your wife remembered anything from college in her notes i mean that's just that's wild to think that she remembered a note from college and then that actually had an effect on who you ended up gonna getting the surgery with that's yep that's nuts man yeah i can't remember what i had for breakfast <laughs> hey i said it was her memory i'm much more like you with my memory i say i have the memory of a goldfish so i was really happy to have her around was there ever any uh worry in your mind and I know you don't want to project this on other people. Was there was there ever ever a thought of death during this period of time for you? I, I yeah, absolutely. And I think I think it'd be really weird if somebody, you know, didn't consider that possibility. I mean, in fact, <laughs> this is kind of morbid, but you know, before surgery, I, I made sure you know the the beneficiaries on my life insurance was up to date. In fact, I tried to apply for more life insurance before um, before surgery, but because of, you know, the, the particular situation and, um, the fact that it was on my medical record, like I, there's not an insurance company in the world that would touch me before the surgery. Um, wow. and I actually have to wait a full year after, uh, a full year after the surgical date before I can apply for more life insurance. So like, I was definitely thinking about it and talking to underwriters, um, you know, I had even talked about, you know, between my my mom and um, my wife, you know, like who was going to make decisions if something went wrong. We had a backup plan just in case they couldn't repair the valve and, and they had to replace it. What they you know, which way I wanted to go versus tissue and mechanical like and I definitely, you know, there were some conversations I was having with people where I, I didn't really say it. But, you know, it was almost like saying my goodbyes because it's it's hard surgery like it's no. They, we do it all the time or the, the, the American medical community performs those surgeries all the time. Um, but it's, it's, so it's a low chance that you're going to have, you know, um, a death on the table, especially for someone who's young and, and relatively fit like me, but it's still a non-zero chance. And that was something that, you know, honestly it did mess with me mentally. Um, and <clears throat> the, the biggest part was, the thing that was hardest for me to um, digest mentally was the fact that, you know, when, when they open you up and, you know, they get access to the heart, you know, and they put you on this, the bypass machine, the heart and lung machine, um, they, they stop your heart and, and they stop it for a long time. Um, mm -hmm. and my procedure was supposed to only take six hours. I ended up being under anesthesia for 12 hours. So it took a lot longer, wow. but in my mind, I'm like, 
you know, I come, I have some experience with race cars. And one of the things that they say when you're, when you're in a race car is like, don't ever turn, unless you have to, you don't ever turn the engine off in the middle of a race because you don't know if it's going to restart. Mm. So that was, you know, messing with my head. And, and thankfully everything worked out, obviously, because, you know, I'm sitting here, but it, it was certainly um, a point of worry because, you know, I didn't want to die. <laughs> Uh, I can imagine. Yeah, none of us do, <laughs> but especially when you're put under those circumstances. Um, now, when you say open you up, they literally open you up. You you sent me a uh, a photo a couple of weeks after surgery, and and it looked like you'd been in a, a vicious um, knife fight with somebody. Um, I mean, they opened you up. Would you mind? I know I asked you this off camera. Would you mind just showing us like your scar? Yeah. So bef before I, before I pull out the, the hatchet wound, um, the, for those who don't know how, I mean, most people have a basic understanding how open heart surgery works, but, um, you know, they're, they're effectively gaining access around, you know, this skeleton that's meant to protect your heart. Right. And, and they need to gain access. So what they do is they'll, they'll cut you, um, with a scalpel about six to eight inches, uh, mine starts about here and, and goes six to eight inches below that. And then they take the, what's the equivalent of a bone saw and they'll, they'll cut the, your, your breastbone or your sternum in half. And then they put a, a rib spreader in that, that goes into the incision and they, you know, they crank a little wheel and it opens you up and then they can, they can see your heart, or at least at that point, the pericardium, but they can see your heart. And then when they're closing you up, there's also, I have, so I have one main incision and I have three effectively stab wounds from the drainage tubes that they put into me as, as they were closing me up. And so, you know, what I'm about to show, you can see the main incision and, and three drainage tube sites. Um, and it's, I mean, it's healing up pretty well. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to address it a little bit more, but like in mm. actually in this lighting, you can't even see it all that well, all that well, but it's still yeah. a little bit raised. Yeah. Um, and the coloring's not too bad, but I got really lucky because they, they did a good job at, at making the incision nice and narrow. And you can see the the three, um, I mean, they're literally stab wounds that are all um, mm -hmm. right there. So they would have had, you know, I would have had an incision from the very top here and they actually would have opened it up to be about roughly this wide apart. Mm. And then there were three like ex basically plastic tubes that this middle one went all the way up to here and these two on the outsides went on either side of my lungs all the way up to here. And they used that to drain um, over a gallon and a half of fluid out of my chest cavity after surgery. Mm. So it was, that procedure is, is pretty bar barbaric by, mm. in my opinion, by um, today's standards, but they just haven't come up with a, a better way to address the heart while giving the surgeon the, the access that they want. So that's just how they do it. Wow, man, just intense. That whole little piece there was just intense. Just thinking about it, how, how does the how does the stern is the sternum right? Mm -hmm. How does that heal? Just like any other, like normally you, you have to put a a cast around a bone to heal. Like why don't they do that for the sternum? Yeah, so there's there's no real good way to um, externally stabilize the 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 breastbone the the sternum. Mm. So what they actually do, um, you know, they'll, they'll, uh, so when they're closing you up, they'll, they'll bring the, the two sides of the sternum together. 
Mm. And then they'll take, they take um, actually, um, I think it's in five, maybe six spots from the bottom of my sternum up to the top. They take stainless steel wire and they just wrap it around both sides and bring the sternum close. Mm. And then they, they twist it at the top and, and bring both sides of the sternum together to basically just place them right next to each other. And then the sternum heals itself over time and, it, and it'll fuse. And so something that's to this day, that's still <laughs> pretty weird. Um, and they say that I'll probably experience this for a full year is like, if I do certain push pull motions, my sternum, my whole sternum will actually pop um, because it's kind of moving like this against itself still very little, but it'll pop and that'll happen. Oh, and um, that, that, that just you. feels weird. It, it like it, that's not super painful, but it, it um, it's not it's not comfortable for sure. But to this like to this day, still, if I cough really heavily, or if I sneeze, um, sometimes I can feel the specific spots where the the stainless steel wire is because my my sternum's trying to pull itself apart, basically. Oh, so they they left the wire on. The wire's not gone. Yeah, like if if you, uh, I wish I had taken a picture of it, but the last x-ray I had, like you can see the actual loops of of stainless steel wire that are still there. Yeah. Oh, so you're going to go off on a metal detector? Uh, stainless steel is non-ferrous, so it does not set off metal detectors. Oh, man. That's a bummer. That'd be so cool to walk through and <laughs> light it up. Yeah. But the, I mean, so death was like, I was worried about pain, death, uh, repair versus replacement, and um, pacemaker. So we already talked a little bit about, you know, the death part. We already talked a little bit about repair versus replacement. There was also a chance that in the repair that they um, were forced to do something to the electrical system, whether that be through cutting through tissue or, or whatever, that was going to cause me to have to have a pacemaker for the rest of my life. And that, that would not be so good, in my opinion. Thankfully, that didn't happen. And then... Um, pain was, you know, it's always an unknown, right? Like most swimmers have a pretty high tolerance for pain just by nature of what we do. But I've heard so many people tell me that, you know, it's by far and away the most painful thing that they've ever experienced. And I, I would certainly agree. In fact, um, you know, I would call the, the pain worry, um, if I was to rate all the worries, you know, from one to four or one to five, pain was probably on the lowest spot it was still a worry but I, I, it was it was there um, just not as high as like death for example mm. um, and I don't remember very much from the first two two and a half days after they brought me out of anesthesia um, just like flashes of like weird random stuff but I, I do remember and, and I asked Clarka to um, there's there's some pretty graphic video and um, pictures that she took and some of it's pretty um, emotionally provoking to to watch for me which is weird because like i don't remember any of it but it's still very like it you know it, it'll it'll i'll start bawling for no real reason mm. um but i do remember and she has video this the first time they got me out of bed and they sat me in a chair <clears throat> and then going from and i was still loopy and they just pulled the breathing tube out and all that stuff but they they had picked me up from the chair and, and i walked over to my bed and got into bed and as they were laying back, you know, just the pain took over and I'm making, you know, these sort of like screaming sounds. And it's, I remember that and being like blown away at how much pain that I was in. It was, it made a 4 a.m. like nothing. 
where where was the pain located and and how could you best describe it it was like getting kicked in the chest by a horse right constantly hmm. and um no one's, nobody the other that. the other side of it like it's not just the, it's not just the, the main, everybody thinks about the main incision, but it's not just that. I mean, they've, they've just gone in and they've, you know, your lungs have been disturbed and your heart's mm. been disturbed and they've cut open the, the, the sack that surrounds your heart. And mm. they've, you've got these chest tubes in and um, you know, your lungs have been deflated. My lungs were deflated for like eight hours. So like I could barely breathe. And anytime I did try to breathe, like, my ribs hurt and my, the way they have you propped up, like to this day, my neck and my back are still, you know, jacked up when they won't see, let me see a chiropractor until um, the end of October. And so to answer your question, I mean, it's, it's like everywhere, but the best way I can describe it is like, you know, getting kicked in the chest by a horse over and over and over and over every half a second. Um, it's just like a ton of pressure and, and intense pain. And they had me on, um, like if, if morphine is this level of, of painkiller and everybody knows morphine, it's some pretty strong stuff. They had me on, um, a pain pump of Dilaudid for three days, which is like more intense than morphine. And I was, they, they, I was getting a dose every 10 minutes and it was like, I needed it every single 10 minutes. Mm. Um, it was the pain part was was gnarly. I do remember that part from the first. I mean, days. listen, mate. To be honest, the, what you're describing to me just sounds like training with Bob Bowman. Really, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so you were prepared well for this at least. <laughs> yeah, him, him, and John, and and Doctor Josh, and all those folks who just you know put you through the ringer six days a week. It was that they did help train me for that. <laughs> did you do you think of it that way? Like, do you do you think that? there's a correlation between the work that you did. Did it help you through it in any way you think? Um, I, I think it's helped me in, in the recovery in that. Um, so in, in some ways, yes. And in some ways, no. Um, the ways that it did help me, I would say are that, you know, I, I had good aerobic capacity. This was something that was fascinating that I was told after this surgery from um, Dr. Crawford. He said that, my cardiac output was like some of the highest he's ever seen. And um, to give you some context, most people have a cardiac output. This is what I was told. I don't know if it's true. This is what I was told. Um, normal cardiac output in that scenario, <clears throat> they're seeing between five and six liters per minute of output of blood from the heart. Um, they said mine was at 16. And they said that like they almost had to max out the heart and lung machine just to keep up with my heart. And that comes definitely from, you know, the, the lifetime of swimming and, and training like crazy that I had. Um, so that was really good. And when I woke up and I was recovering, you know, there was never a point where like, you know, they were trying to get me moving because I needed more blood flow. My heart was already doing that really well. Um, but I would say more than anything, it was, it was reinflating my lungs. Um, so they, they give you this thing after you wake up from open heart surgery called an incentive spirometer. And basically what it is, is it's just a piece of plastic that has like a gauge in it. And you, you breathe in, um, a certain, at a certain rate and you breathe in as much air as you can. Mm. And when I first got this machine, it's, it's labeled from 500 up to 4,000. 
I could barely get to 500 just because my lungs had atrophied so much in those couple of, in those eight to nine hours where I was on the heart and lung machine that I couldn't get much air. And so I had to like train my lungs to get bigger and bigger and bigger over the course of time to the point where, you know, I didn't need it anymore. And since then, you know, I've gotten back into running and, and this is really where I think that the previous history of training has helped because you know, I was told the other day, like, the the length of time and the speed that I had just run, you know, they had never seen anybody five weeks after surgery do what I had done on a treadmill. And I've not been much of a runner, but it made me feel good at like, okay, I, I'm on a really good track. But on the other side of it, the mental aspect was, and I, you know, this is a normal thing after surgery, I guess, but they, you're, you go into a natural state of depression and not depression, like I'm frustrated or you know, I'm having negative thoughts or anything like that. But like, I just had no energy and no interest in doing anything. Like I was perfectly content to just sit there and, and stare at a wall. And that led to some frustration because me being the, you know, the, the former athlete and someone who's, you know, a high productivity person, not having the ability to get the mental energy and the focus to do things, but also having to deal with mental fog, like that got really frustrating. I really struggled with that. Mm. And I think my previous history of being, you know, a high octane person, so to speak, um, in that I like to get stuff done. I like doing a lot of things and didn't have, you know, the mental capacity to do it. That part was really, um, that was really hard. Yeah. Uh, well, last thing I want to touch on here before we kind of go into your swimming career a little bit, because I want I'm sure you got some stories of that, but, um, you know, what's the, what's the, it sounds like you're running already. I'd be scared shitless to do anything where my heart would pump, you know, but, um, <laughs> like what's the prognosis here in terms of full recovery? How, how long? Well, so it depends on how you define recovery. Um, my freedom date, so to speak is October 29th, which is a full 12 weeks after surgery. And, and what that is defined as is when I don't have any restrictions anymore. Meaning I don't, you know, there's no weight restrictions. Actually, I can only lift a certain amount of weight because, um, you know, if I'm putting a lot of weight on my arms, it puts a lot of stress on, on the, the, the sternum and the wires. So they want to give the sternum time to, to heal. So they're confident that I can lift whatever I want after 12 weeks. But then it's like, you know, well, how do I get back to, you know, how long does it take me to get back to where I was before? Personally, I think I can get to running a full four miles without stopping at a 10 minute pace by the end of next month. I think I can get there. And that would have been running wise at, or maybe a little bit better than where I was before. I'm not a fast runner. However, what really, what it really boiled down to for me was not like, you know, how do I recover back to what I was doing before as a swimmer, but like how, how durable do the surgeons feel my repair is going to be? Hmm. So I actually asked one of the surgeons a very specific question. And, and before I say it, I don't have any intent whatsoever. <laughs> I'm just, I was asking this question to see how, you know, how far they would let me push, you know, the repair work that they just did. And I said, I asked, you know, is there a swimming comeback in my future? And the surgeon looked right at me and said, if you want it to be sure. And that made me feel really good in terms of like, if I really want to push myself, they're confident that what they've done will, will hold together and, and I won't have a problem. 
And I'm currently in, in um, I go three times a week to cardiac rehab in the mornings. And to your point earlier, like I was terrified to get my heart rate up super high because like I didn't know if everything was working right or yeah. a repair would hold or anything like that. So what they actually do in these cardiac rehab sessions is they'll hook me up. So I'll have two um, electrodes here and then one on this side of my chest that hooks up to a cardiac monitor that I wear the entire workout. And they're able to watch the the, the rhythm of my heart to make sure everything's right. They're constantly monitoring my blood pressure. I'm on, you know, some blood pressure and um, heart medication now. And I was told everything's working extremely well. So that, that makes me feel good. But um, there's no real def definitive time frame on when I'm fully recovered other than the freedom date. And I can get in the water after the end of October and hopefully continue to get in better shape. Wow, man, amazing. Well, the only thing I heard right there is that you're in training for Paris 2024, so that's awesome, man. I said the exact opposite. <laughs> you know how people take things. So. I know. <laughs> so, listen, let, let's talk about your swimming career then. You know, you've got through this open heart surgery, and thank God for that. that it's, you're, you're on the mend. Um, but in terms of your swimming career, I mean, you had an incredible one. Um you know, swimming for some legendary programs and legendary coaches against some legendary competition and, and had some legendary uh, performances yourself. So uh, a lot to talk about in terms of that. But um, uh, what, what's the one most memorable takeaway from um, your swimming career other than winning the Olympics in 2012? The one most memorable takeaway, I mean, Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, just that, you know, I, it's, it's interesting cause I, I work, I work with a number of swimmers now and, um, it's funny now to me looking back at what I was doing and, you know, swimming was my world. Right. And, um, you know, everybody told me along the way, you know, just enjoy what you're doing. Cause you know, you're never going to be in this position in life ever again. Cause as we all know, professional swimming comes to an end pretty quickly. You know, most, most swimmers don't last super long unless you're uh, an Anthony Irvin, for example. Yeah. Um, and so the, the biggest takeaway that I, I have now is, is just cherishing all the time that I spent with some pretty amazing individuals. And, um, you know, John Urbanchek is, um, you know, someone that, you know, I absolutely grew to and, and still do love very much, not only for what we achieved together and, and what I was able to achieve because of, of, of him and, and not only him, but also all the coaches and, and people that pushed me along the way. But he just has this, John has this special ability to be able to write high level workouts that will get a lot of performance out of people. But he also has the ability to gauge an entire group and figure out how to get just one or 2% more mm. and, and inspire you to get that one or 2% more. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm inspired by all that he's given to the sport. Um, and that's something that I, I, I think about quite a lot in, in what I do now. Um, and it's probably the biggest takeaway in my mind at this point. Give us one of those herby sets, man. Um, give us one of the famous Urbanchek sets that you did that you feel like you crushed. Um, there was there was a set that we did of, I believe it was 12 300s. 
um, long course and we were, we were in Fullerton at the time. So I was, uh, Jackson Wilcox was in the water. Michael Clee was in the water. Chip Peterson was in the water. And I just had one of those days where even though I've, you know, I have a background of doing a lot of long distance freestyle, but it's not something I competed quite a lot. Mm. And I just had one of those days where, and maybe it was one of those days where I had a really good day and, and everybody else was, you know, not feeling so great or, or whatever, but I just, I felt absolutely invincible, um, on that set. And I can't remember what I held, but I, I crushed all of the, the example paces that, that John had, had created for me. Cause that's what he does. He'll, he'll have a set for you and he'll lay everything out. And then you'll also have a time chart and everybody's got, you know, your, your assigned red pace and pink pace and blue and, and so on and so forth. But another thing I remember very fondly, um, not only from just John, but also from my Michigan days would be days where I would, everybody would get in my group, anybody anyway, would get a, a big long course or, or short course, long aerobic set, you know, mostly freestyle. And I would flip over on my back and do the whole set backstroke and see how many guys or, or people that I could beat while doing backstroke when they were doing freestyle. Um, and I had some, some great sets like that too. Why'd you end up uh, choosing Michigan? Yeah, so um, at the time, um, they had one of the best training groups in the world. Bob Bowman was there, Michael Phelps, um, Peter Vanderkay, Christy Young, Cleet Keller, Eric Vent, Caitlin Sandino, um, on top of all of the amazing talent they, that they had at Michigan. So from a from a talent, you know, in the, in the water perspective, they had everything there, in my opinion. Mm, no and so, and I had also seen that compared to some of the other programs I was looking at, they, they had, in my opinion, more of a focus on the long course side of, of our sport instead of, you know, placing a sole focus on the short course side of the sport, which for me, you know, I had international aspirations. So that was important to me. And, um, you know, I loved the energy of, of the college team when I was there. In fact, my, my first trip was an unofficial trip to University of Southern California. And that was good. Um, you know, got to see the program, get to know Dave Salo a little bit more, um, you know, learn about what he had going on there. And then I went on my first official trip, which was Michigan. And I was actually ready to commit at the end of my trip. Like I, I was on the phone with my mom and dad saying like, I want to commit now. Like this is not only do I, I appreciate all the talent that's in the water, but like I truly felt like I connected with all of, all of the people on my college team or that I thought was going to be my college team. And they, they, we talked about it and made the decision that I was going to take at least one more, um, one more official trip to one of the, one of the other big swim schools to give myself some context at least. Right? right. And so I went on my next official trip to Cal and had a great time there and, you know, loved the campus. I've been there multiple times before that trip for a number of different reasons. And, but just didn't feel the same level of connection to the team that I, that I did at Michigan. And, and I, I didn't feel the same sense of tradition um, in my experience as I did at Michigan. So that pretty much sealed the deal for me. I, I called, um, I had a scheduled trip to University of Texas and I actually called Eddie Reese and um, let him know that I, I didn't intend on on going on that trip because I was planning on committing to Michigan and, and I did it. 
See, not not everybody goes to Texas. He doesn't get them all. <laughs> no. Ed, Eddie's got this famous quote that he would always tell me. He's like, Brett, I've heard no more than I've heard yes. <laughs> so you were definitely one of the no's. But, Don't um, we all? <laughs> yes. Uh, um, well, it, well, I mean, it changed your life in that sense. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, training in that group must have been crazy. Uh how was your relationship with Michael? I mean, you're a competitor of his, you're a training partner of his. That's got to be a tough situation to be a competitor while also training at the same time. Did you find that experience to be difficult? I, I mean, why would that, why would that relationship be any different from somebody else that you were swimming with who swims in the same events, right? Like we all, we all compete with each other at, at some level. And, um, I don't, I don't think that really changes at least at the foundational level, how swimmers manage each other. I think swimmers are very good judges of character and they just tend to associate with and have good relationships with people that they appreciate and they have the same values. So I don't well, think, well, yeah, I, I think, I think you're being nice too. I think, I think the fact of the matter is that you were a killer competitor. Michael's a killer competitor. I mean, you're racing against each other. He he he's seeing your talent level. You know his talent level. I mean, at some point, uh, or where where was the balance then? Where was it beneficial to both of you, and where did it hurt both of you? I, I think that there was a, a certain level of energy there that um, you know we both used to to help push us real hard in, in both competition and, and in training. Um, you know, I, I was, I don't know exactly how Michael operates cause we, we haven't talked a whole lot about this sort of thing, but, um, I, I am definitely a swimmer who I, I swim better when I'm angry. So there, in certain cases I would, even if I have to make it up in my mind, like I, I would create some conflict in my own mind and use that as a way to, you know, shrug off, you know, some of the pain that we all deal with regularly. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also think that there were times in my career where, um, you know, it, it was a distraction in, in that, you know, I, I was worried about what some people might say or, or, or think, um, as it related to Michael and I's relationship. And, and I think that may have taken my focus away from, you know, the best comp, the best competitive performance I could have had or the best practice performance I could have had. So it was a little bit of a balance, but my, uh, my mom always says you can't make everybody happy and those you can't make happy ain't got any control over it. So just keep on moving. How did you see yourself during that period of time? I mean, you're obviously wanting to be the best at what you do and then you've got the greatest in history right next to you. So how did you actually view yourself? Um, well, I just viewed myself as like, I, I had a chip on my shoulder cause you know, here I am trying to do the best and as, as I can. Right. But then you get to a point where you start to have earned a little bit of, of, of a name for yourself in that, like, you know, you've, you've placed pretty high at, at national level competitions and you've, you've competed on an international level. It may not necessarily be at, you know, the, the best in the world or greatest of all time level at that point, but you, you've certainly earned, you know, some level of respect. Right. 
And I would, you know, there would be people, and I'm sure this happens to every swimmer ever, but you know, you start talking about swimming to somebody who doesn't know swimming all that much. Like, Oh, have you ever, ever trained with Michael Phelps? Or have you ever, do you ever swim with Ryan Lochte? And it's just like, yeah, I swim with them all the time. Right. But I'm pretty dang close to, to being as good. And in fact, I've, I've beaten him a couple of times. So that was, that was definitely like something that was helped fire me up, but I didn't, I didn't ever, I didn't ever put myself on the same level, but I also didn't let Michael's or Ryan's or anybody really for that matter have, I didn't let their ability take away from what I thought was possible. And at the end of the day, and I tell people this all the time, Ryan is Ryan Lochte is an amazing swimmer. Katie Ledecky is an amazing swimmer. Missy Franklin is an amazing swimmer. Michael Phelps obviously is the greatest of all time. He's an amazing swimmer, but they're still human beings. They still bleed. They still feel pain. So I, I, in, in my mind, I didn't see any reason why I, I couldn't deal with pain just a little bit better or that I couldn't put myself in a position to be close at the end of a race and just find a way to, to you know, get my hand on the wall first. So I, I certainly respected them and re still respect them for their, their um, performances and their contributions to the sport. But I, in my opinion, I, I didn't let myself um, be hindered by who they were and who they're um, their performances made them to be, um, because I just, I viewed them as humans that could be beaten. Man, I, I swam with some of the greatest athletes in history and, um, you know, Ian Thorpe, Michael Clem, Grant Hackett. I mean, the, these were my buddies. These were my teammates. Um, uh, there were times where it irritated me that they, the level of their fame and the, the amount of money they were making and, you know, just I felt like I I did a lot. Uh, I I think the thing that was missing, obviously, was the consistency and the level of winning. I mean, I, I wasn't stupid. I, I understood that. But the, the disparity between what I was doing and what they were getting was just enormous, you know. And so it irritated me at times. Did it did it ever get like that with you and, say, Ryan or, or Michael, you know? Um, I mean... <laughs> You know, sure. Like when we're all putting in the same the same amount of time, and you know, and don't get me wrong. Like, I made good money while I was swimming, so it's not like I was I was I was wanting I was wanting for for more, needing more. I, I was definitely wanting to make more, but only because it was like, well, I'm putting in just as much time traveling and competing and, mm. and all of this stuff, and I'm not getting compensated the same. But at the end of the day, like that's just head trash, right? Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. And, and I understand that better now. And I wish I would have had a better understanding and comprehension of that while I was swimming compared to how I do now. But I mean, yeah, it, it bothered me a little bit, but only, you know, it was just ego and, and my humanity that was, that was hurt. It wasn't my, my ability to train or, or my ability to compete. But, you know, to your point, like, the world's not fair, right? They're, like you, you have lots of people out there. Like there are plenty of people out there that have really high paying jobs that probably, you know, maybe don't deserve to be there. And not lots of people that absolutely bust their butts every day and, and they're not making anywhere near as much, but that, I mean, your effort and your compensation don't have a correlation. Sometimes they do, but not always. And right, so right. that was just something that I had to deal with. 
So you, you had to find peace of mind somewhere then in terms of the level of satisfaction that you were getting out of your own yeah. career and your own. Well, and, and just to, to be clear, like I didn't judge my success, nor do I think anybody should judge their success on how much they're compensated for swimming. Like that's, that's the last thing, but that was because I was at, at a certain point, a professional swimmer that became another metric to, <laughs> to compare yourself to other people. But it's not comparable, right? Like I don't have, I don't have, I have one Olympic gold medal or it's over here. I have one Olympic gold medal. I don't have anywhere near as many medals as Ryan Lochte or Michael Phelps do. I don't have as many world records as those guys do. Um, I, I wasn't, I didn't swim at an international level for as long as, as they did. So to some level there, there was a natural reasoning behind why things turned out the way they did, but it was just something that was more of a distraction. And I recognize that now back then, than I should have let it be. I think there were some people out there who were surprised that you won the 200 back. You weren't the favorite to win that day. I mean, yeah, I was going to ask you that. Were you surprised that you won? I mean, look, look at the picture that everybody's seeing where I'm like this, like that's, that's a genuine look of shock on my face. <laughs> Why? Why were you shocked? I just like, so leading up to that, leading up to that particular summer, Ryan was on fire. It, like they were literally there. Were, I, I remember seeing a video or an article of some kind. It was literally like, this is going to be Ryan Lochte's Olympics. 2012, right? Correct. Yep. And he, I, I mean, he was absolutely on fire and I, I was enjoying every opportunity. I got to swim next to him and 99 times out of a hundred or 98, maybe he would beat me. And I, I was at that point complacent in being, you know, they, they called us the smash brothers for a while. Cause we would do all the same events. And for a while it was like, you know, Ryan Lochte and Tyler Clary were one, two in, in all the events that we swam together right. and going into that comp, going into that particular final. Um, I felt great in semis. I felt wonderful in prelims. And I felt like I was, I was very confident that I, I could medal. I was very confident that I would medal, but in my opinion, I was swimming in my mind. I, I was like perfectly complacent to swim for second or third place only because I was like, I'm going to share the podium with not only a really good friend of mine, but with another American. And so when I, I hit the wall and I looked up and, and not only did I see first place, but also Olympic record next to my name. I mean, it, it was, it was a total shock because I, I hadn't, had a breakthrough swim like that on a major international level like that before. And of course the, you know, the, the time that I do, it's, it's at the freaking Olympic games. Everybody wants that magic, man. So what was it for you that day that clicked? Is there any secret sauce? The, the, the couple of things that stand out to me about that particular swim and, and I don't know where it comes from um, were, the last, the last wall, the last set of underwaters were easily the best underwaters I've ever had in my entire career. In fact, I, I, gained, I believe I gained ground on, on Ryan underwater. And I, I don't think I had ever done that before. Mm. Um, and I also remember uh, I was starting to go into oxygen debt in the last, in the last lap and, you know, started to lose a little bit of my peripheral vision. So I couldn't quite see exactly what was going on to my right, which is yeah. where both Ryan and, and um, Rioske were. 
Yeah, you had a heart issue at that point in time, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, but I, I just remember thinking I was close and seeing splashing off to my right, but not exactly knowing if it was coming from the arms or from the feet or whatever. So literally, I just remember saying to myself, um, and, you know, this this is a little unfiltered, but saying to myself, you know, just put your hands up above your head as far as you can, grab as much water as you can, throw it at your feet as hard as you can and see who's got the bigger set of balls coming home. Um, because at that point, I knew everybody was in pain. It was just going to be about who was going to be able to, to manage it better. And um, I also remember, you know, my, my level of confidence and just saying, just let it fly. Um, those, those were all things that stood out to me as some, something that happened that was different. And I also actually leading up to the, the Olympic final, that was the only time before that point or up to that point where I had, um, I had visualized. I, I hadn't ever in my career before visualized any of my swims like I did that, that final. And I, I definitely think that helped. When was this visualization taking place at the, at the village, in the call room? When was it happening? At, at the village the morning before the race. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, okay. So did you wake up nervous that morning? Is that why you started the visualization? Um, a little bit, but only because I, I had, I had seen a couple swims already that were like, you know, people in the outside of the pool were, you know, doing the old fly and die strategy and, um, there was a lot of other noise going on at the time in terms of just stuff around the Olympics. And I wanted to be able to answer as many questions in my mind as I could before the race. Like, what am I going to do if my goggles break? What am I going to do if my cap rips? What am I going to do if my suit rips? What am, you know, answer all these little questions that you can sort of kind of control mm. um, or at least be prepared to respond to if that happens. And then also I went through every permutation of how that race could go. Like if I was leading at the 50, what would I do? How would I feel if I was last at the hundred and so on and so forth and everything in between, like, how would I respond? What am I going to do? What am I going to think? What am I going to feel? So I felt confident going into that swim. Cause it was like, I've already answered all these questions and I know how I'm going to respond. So it's just a matter of executing at this point. Right. Okay. So that's where the, those keywords were coming in at the end of that race. There, you you said you repeated a few words. You probably already had re rehearsed those things, so you knew what to to click into. Those were all purely, the, especially like the you know basically just sack up and get home thing. Like mm -hmm. that was purely heat of the moment just green, <laughs> sort green of thing. Teeth. Yeah. yeah, basically. Had you had you done that in practice? Was that kind of a common thing for you in practice when when your back's against the wall and you got to finish a set? Was that was that something that was common for you? I was table stakes. What's that every 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 hard workout, um, you know, unless I was absolutely you know dragging that day. Um, if I didn't get to the end of the workout and didn't feel like I, I had been punched in the gut like four or five times and I hadn't tried hard enough. So that was just how I did it. Right. Right. So it wasn't difficult for you to get into that state then of like grit your teeth and bear it. Oh, it's, it's difficult. It's always difficult to do it. I don't care who you are, but that it was sort of, I had programmed myself to do that, but I had never, I had never like had an internal conversation in the middle of the pool <laughs> while I was finishing a 200 back like that before. <laughs> Where did you identify yourself? In which race did you feel the most comfortable out of all the races you swam? 400 IM. Really? That's, that was your identity? Why is that? 
I, I just that that to me was was the biggest test of of how um, well rounded you are as a swimmer. On top of being able to deal with some of the heaviest workloads as a swimmer, on top of having to deal with the probably the most the highest pain load of of any swimmer. So it was really to me it was like the people who are winning 400 IMs on, on the international level, like those are the best swimmers in the pool, in my opinion. So that's, that's what I wanted to be in everything. Oh, see, I thought the opposite. I thought anyone that did the 400 IM sucked because they just couldn't sprint. So they did the 400 <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> I wish I was a sprinter. <laughs> it's funny how we justify these things in our head, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm, it's I'm rationalization at its best. <laughs> but you didn't end up qualifying in the 400 IM at the London Olympics, right? I did not. So that must have messed with your identity. If that's your identity and that's taken away from you, how did you then re recalibrate? Uh, so I actually, I took a couple of days off after I didn't make the team in that event. Um, and I, I actually had a fever uh, leading <laughs> to the two days leading up to that event. I had a fever. So I, I was sick and I, I don't know that that would have changed the results at, at that trials or not, but either way, I didn't make it in that event. And um, I actually took a couple of days off and scratched some of my events. And I actually went go-kart racing the next day after um, I missed that event just to totally get myself out of, um, of that headspace and into something different. And I just made the realization like, all right, well, you know, this one didn't work, but I got, I got a couple of other shots and the 200 fly and the 200 back. And, and thankfully it, it worked out on those. So it was really just kind of like, I don't have any choice but to move forward. So, what are my other what are my other shots? And let's figure out how to maximize my chances of making the team in those other other opportunities. You didn't uh, win the trials in either the two fly or the two back, did you? I did not. So, who were the who were the people that you had to beat out of that second spot thing? Because you 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 probably weren't thinking, oh, this you know, I'm the favorite for the turner back at trials. So who did you have to beat out to get that spot? Oh man, um, I don't think my memory's that good. <laughs> you know who there were, third? I mean, I believe, huh? Who finished third? I couldn't even tell you, to be honest. I have no idea. Third but, sucked. Third's terrible. I, I, I seriously, I don't remember. I remember there were a couple of names in in some of those heats that I remember, like Tom Lushinger and Bobby Boyer, Tom Shields. Um, we're in the two fly. I remember those names. Um, and they're, they're, you know, sorry, I don't remember everybody. Um, I believe Jake Pebley and Ryan Murphy were in the, in the 200 back final that year. Mm. Um, who, uh, I think Matt Grievers was, I think Matt Grievers was supposed to be in it, but he scratched that final. Um, and I don't remember the other names after this. So this this is almost ten years ago at this point. So yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. surprised I was able to recall those names. Yeah, but it's just amazing that you get yourself on that team and then you end up winning the Olympics in in the event that you're just not favored for. So it's it's it's, a, it's an awesome story, man. It's great, uh, incredible. Uh, what, what did you think of the events this year at the at the Olympics in Tokyo? Do you have any thoughts on the 400 IM or the 200 back or anything like that? Uh. I, I think so. They they swam the pre or they swam the finals in the morning, right? Right. Yeah. That's uh tough to do. 
that's a tough thing to do and to go 409 in the morning is uh <laughs> that does not sound like fun pain wise <laughs> most Just people to- are very critical of that you know like oh the times are slow but it's like you don't realize it's the morning like they just woke up and had some cereal and went 409 yeah that's that's hard um i I have a lot of respect for that um but i also have you know there there have been a couple people that have asked me directly like oh does it does it bother you that the winning time was three seconds slower and and i tell them well if all things equal yeah right like i i you know if if i was to go back and and do the same time i did albeit suited in 2009 with the, the super suits or whatever and go 406 again yeah, I would have been three seconds ahead of them, but that was when I had that suit on. It was in the afternoon where it's a little bit easier to swim a 400 IM at that speed. And at the end of the day, like the time literally does not matter at the Olympics. Unless you're breaking a world record or some sort of record, it literally means nothing. Mm -hmm. You're there to race. You're there to, you're there to get on the podium first, second or third place. Nobody asks you, oh, when you go to the, when you, you know, when you're at the Olympics, like, what was your time? They ask, oh, did you medal? The time doesn't mean anything. So I, I have a lot of respect for those, for the, um, all of the athletes, but especially the U.S. athletes, um, for being able to go over there amongst the absolutely insane um, lead up to this Olympics with COVID, not being able to train and then having to compete in the morning and, and still you know, getting the job done and, and representing our country well. So um, when you look at it from the surface, yeah, the times are a little bit slower, but it's, they're still amazing performances. Yeah, for sure. Well, what'd you think of um, the, the backstrokes, you know, obviously Ryan ended up uh, losing and then the streak of like American backstrokers for years and years and years was, was going on. And then, you know, he, he made some comments I think that he backed away from a little bit in terms of, um, you know, kind of the whole drug thing a little bit there. But um, you know, what what do you think of that? Yeah, I, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna steer clear of that 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 subject that um, you know has been talked about ad nauseum, just in terms of you know in, ensuring that we have a clean sport. And I, I'm so far removed at this point that I. I I don't have any good um, comments to make about what I think, nor do I think my comments would be accurate, but I will say this, every street comes to an end. Everything comes to an end, right? Like it, it, it wouldn't matter if we had 120 years of American backstroke dominance, eventually it would come to an end. And, and in this case, it was, you know, it was the, the 2020 Olympics. Um, but I, I think one thing that makes America so great is our ability to take a punch and get back up. Mm. And I'm looking forward to 2024 to see who represents us in those, in the backstroke events again. And, um, you know, I, I, ex- I expect to see, uh, the tables be turned from what they were like in Tokyo. Yeah. Good answer, man. Terrible question. Good answer. Now, listen, <laughs> uh, what are you doing these days, man? Talk to us. Yeah. So, um, I'm actually working, um, at, with, um, and it's through an association with Northwestern Mutual, um, I'm actually working with professional athletes, not just swimmers, um, but professional athletes, swim coaches, um, parents who have kids that swim, and, and really anybody that has a connection to the sport um, with comprehensive financial planning. Um, you know, what, what I noticed while I was swimming and, and through my um, several years after swimming was that 
my level of financial literacy while I was competing and, and making money was basically non-existent. Like I, I had no idea what I was doing. I made some good moves just by, by chance, but a lot of, t a lot of places um, I went wrong and I started looking around at, at the environment and was just had the realization that it wasn't just me, like a lot of other swimmers out there have, they spend so much time competing and so much time training and, for coaches, you spend so much time, you know, trying to juggle family life and, you know, having a season plan and figuring out where you, you know, what meets you're going to go to and just managing the day to day. And families are super busy that we just don't have enough time to learn about about personal finance. And I didn't see anybody really working in the space that, um, you know, I had heard of or or that I could get connected with. So I figured. You know, we all we all hear a lot of swimmers that that move on from the sport and they talk about wanting to give back, um, and and they do so. You know, whether it be through charity or through, you know, swim schools to you know to help address certain problems that they they feel connected with. And and for me, that is um, helping people with their finances. So um, this is my way of giving back. And I, I will say, and I, I've said this to multiple people, but it truly what I, what I do now, um, I feel is the most purposeful thing I've ever done because I'm helping people in, in a way that they really need so that they're enabled to go out and, and do their job better. And my pie in the sky vision is if I can affect, um, as many people in swimming as I, as I possibly can in a positive way, that's only going to help Team USA be better. You know, if, if swimmers and coaches are spending more of their time and mental capital figuring out how to get faster or make their swimmers faster instead of, you know, having some of these questions in the back of their mind about how they're going to prepare for the future and, and even be ready for tax season and, and just understanding all these questions that people have, that's going to help them be faster swimmers. And, and that would be my way to not only help the sport at large, but also help Team USA. Yeah, well, not only Team USA, but you're helping Team Australia over here. I'm I'm a client, and you're helping me, and I needed it. And so I'll, I'll be the first to admit, guys, like it's good stuff. It's uh, definitely something worthwhile, definitely worth a conversation with Tyler. So um, reach out to either him or me. We can get you in contact if you want that type of help. So, uh, mate, listen, uh, appreciate your time. Appreciate you taking your shirt off for everybody, showing us, <laughs> showing us your scars um but mate get healthy and uh we'll see you back soon all right i appreciate yeah, it absolutely no thank you for the opportunity to be on it's always um it's always good to have a have a conversation with you like this um i i appreciate the little um testimonial there that that feels really good and you know i hope that uh, i'll get to come back again soon yep absolutely man all right talk soon take care bye thanks y'all so the Magic 5 Custom Swim Goggles. Now, I got to tell you, I really love these things. I did the scan. I got the Magic 5 app, and I held up my phone to my face. It took a scan of my face within 10 seconds. It shoots it off, gets processed, and within a couple of weeks, I get these brand new goggles that are custom fit to my face. No leaks. The gasket fits perfectly around my eyes. I got to tell you, these things look beautiful. They're, they're good-looking goggles. They're super clear. I can see out of the peripheral. Everything is as I would want it. Custom fit. Use code BRETTHAWK20 to get 20% off your own pair of custom fit 
Magic 5 goggles. These things are incredible. I highly recommend them. All strokes, breaststroke, backstroke, butterfly, freestyle, perfect fit to your face. Get yourself a pair today.